Good morning, church. I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 13 as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah. We've been in the book of Isaiah for a couple months, and we spent about 12 weeks, I looked back, we spent 12 weeks studying the introductory section in chapters 1 through 6, and then we spent about four weeks studying the second major section, which is chapters 7 through 12, And so this morning we've come to the third major section of the book, which is chapters 13 through 23. And uh, I told the first service that my goal was to cover this section in just one message. And guess what? I didn't make it through. So so I'm going to tell you that we're going to cover it in two messages. And uh, hopefully I'll be uh, on pace uh, to finish uh, this section next week. As I've mentioned, though, as you kind of see, kind of 12 messages in the first section, four messages in the second Lord willing, two messages uh, here for the third section. As I mentioned, because Isaiah is such a long book and I would like to keep our study of this book to as close to a year, two year and a half as I can, uh, we're gonna be studying certain portions pretty thoroughly and then we're gonna kind of speed up to survey uh, other uh, portions of the book. And so we're kind of entering into that survey section in chapters 13 through 23. If you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, it begins by saying, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And if, you, if that wording uh, sounds familiar to you, it's because it's very similar to the wording of chapter 1, verse 1, which says, The vision of A- Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw. And so very similar wording occurs between chapter 1, verse 1, and then chapter 13, verse 1. And this tells us that there's a significant transition occurring in the book from a focus on Judah and Jerusalem to now a focus on Babylon and the other nations surrounding Israel. In fact, in chapters 13 through 23, there are prophecies about 11 different nations. There's a prophecy about Judah, but there's a prophecy about 10 surrounding nations. So 11 prophecies about 11 different nations in all. And there is a single theme which runs through all 11 prophecies about the 11 different nations. And that is what I've entitled the message this morning, which is simply that God is the judge of all the earth. That is the major point of this third section. Isaiah wants to drive home that God is the judge of all the nations of the earth all of the nations are accountable to him and even the most powerful nations and the most powerful rulers are subject to their creator whether they acknowledge it or not the scriptures call jesus the king of kings and the lord of lords and so in this section that kingship over the nations is going to be Proclaimed, and those who rebel against the higher power, against the king of all kings, are pronounced with judgment. And so I think the point of Isaiah 13 through 23 is really the same one that was made so powerfully and poignantly in Psalm chapter 2. And so I wanted to read Psalm chapter 2 as we begin our study of this section this morning. Listen to the Lord's sovereignty over the nations. Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, 
Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us, right? So this is the kings of the world saying, we don't have to submit to God the king. We don't have to submit to the king of all kings. We can throw off his bonds, throw off his fetters. We can rebel and we can be his equal or even greater than him. So they scheme to overthrow the most high. But look at verse four. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, uh, the earth and all that is in it is the Lord's. And this rebellion, led by Satan, but, but then manifested by the kings of the earth, even all of them as they counsel together and try to unite against God, they will fail. Christ is the rightful king, and this rebellion will be suppressed, and there is wrath that is going to come on these rebels and so it is only those who take refuge in the grace of God it's only those who take refuge in him that will be saved from the wrath to come so Psalm 2 is a statement of God's sovereignty over the nations his judgment upon the evil rebels and his offer of salvation to all who will repent and take refuge in the gospel so the point here is that the nations are accountable to God. They do answer to him whether they acknowledge it or not. The rulers of the nations are accountable to God whether they realize it or not. They will give an account to him. The judges and the rulers and the kings and the powerful and the elite, they are not the highest powers. They are secondary powers and they answer to God the most high. That is the theme of Isaiah 13 through 23 is that God is sovereign over the nations. So with that theme in mind that God is the judge of all the earth, we're gonna kind of walk through each of the prophecies to the 11 nations and obviously we don't have time to study everything in these prophecies in depth. So what I'm gonna do is I'm, I've just kind of selected one key theological or practical lesson from each of the prophecies to the nations and we're just gonna kind of look at, at a single lesson that we can glean from these sections. So we're gonna begin with the prophecy to Babylon in chapter 13, verse one, all the way through chapter 14, verse 23, and then Babylon is addressed again in chapter 21, verses one through 10. And when I looked at those sections, I really 
believe that the major point here is simply this Satan's rebellion will fail. That is the message. Satan's rebellion will fail. And when we look at the prophecy to Babylon, the first thing I want you to note is a little bit of something from the historical context. When Isaiah wrote this, Babylon was a second-rate power. They were not a dominant global superpower. At the time Isaiah's writing, Assyria and Egypt are the dominant superpowers. And yet, in chapter 14, verses 4 through 7, Babylon is described as wielding the scepter over many rulers, as striking many peoples, as subduing many nations, and of persecuting the world with no one who is able to restrain them. In other words, Isaiah prophesies accurately the rise of Babylon to become a world superpower long before it happened. This is prophetic, and only God, who knows the future, could have revealed this to Isaiah. But in this section, not only is the rise of Babylon prophesied, but its fall to the Medo-Persians in 539 BC is also prophesied. It's prophesied in chapter 13, verses 17 through 18. And that's even more amazing, because if Babylon was a second-rate power in the time of Isaiah, The Medes were at best a third-rate power, and so you have this amazingly accurate prophecy that Babylon will rise, become a world superpower, but then the Medo-Persians will rise and even conquer the Babylonians, and these are things that only one who knows the future could reveal. And so this is just a reminder, we're not studying just a normal book. This is not just some ancient legend. This is something written in 700 BC which accurately predicts events which take place in 539 BC, some 160 years later. Now as you read the prophecy against Babylon, you're gonna notice that while the initial fulfillment of this judgment, right, the judgments prophesied against Babylon, there's an initial fulfillment which is talked about in these chapters, which is when the Medo-Persians ravaged Babylon in 539 BC, but there are also uh, aspects and elements of the prophecy that clearly look to yet another event which is farther in the future, and that is the fall of what is called in the book of Revelation called Babylon the Great. So look, for example, at chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, which clearly has eschatological or end times language. Chapter 13, verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And the day of the Lord is the great judgment which comes at the end times. The day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger." This is clearly an end times prophecy and many other passages in scripture indicate that cosmic upheaval which affects the light of the stars, the sun and the moon will occur in the tribulation period. That's seen in Isaiah 24, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Amos 8, 
Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and then in Revelation chapter 6. And so the language and certain elements of this prophecy clearly look to an end times fulfillment. And so there are portions of the prophecy directed towards the near term with the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians and then another, other sections which are looking to what that fall of ancient Babylon foreshadows, which is the fall of the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is called in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, Babylon the Great. And since it's clear that the fall of ancient Babylon prophetically foreshadows the fall of Babylon the Great in the end times, it's not surprising that Isaiah's prophecy of God's judgment against the ancient king of Babylon foreshadows God's future judgment against the coming Antichrist. And it is also not surprising that the text not only addresses the wicked ancient king and the wicked coming king, but the one who empowered them both, which is Satan himself. Look at chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. This is written to the king of Babylon, but notice how the language looks past the servant to his dark master. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Whose voice are you hearing there? Well, it is the same voice that said to Adam and Eve, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. Here we see again that same dark spirit saying, I will be like the most high. I will lift my throne above his. The language used here as well as Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 10 verse 18 indicate that God here is speaking not only to the wicked king of Babylon, though he is addressing the wicked king of Babylon, he is also addressing his master, the master of the king of Babylon, who is Satan. So both the ancient king of Babylon, who foreshadows the coming Antichrist, they are both empowered by Satan, and they do his bidding. They are servants of the dark prince. And so Isaiah describes not only the evil servant, but his evil master. Not just the wicked king of Babylon, but the devil. And I want you to notice what is said by Satan and by his minions. The phrase, I will, appears five times in two verses. Verse 13, I will ascend to heaven. Again in verse 13, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Verse 13 again, I will sit on the mount of assembly. Verse 14, I will ascend above the clouds. And again in verse 14, I will make myself like the most high. Five times the phrase, I will, appears in the mouth of the evil king and his dark lord. 
This is revealing to us that a key characteristic of the servants of Satan and of their master is proud self-will. If I was going to describe what is at the heart of the devil based on this passage, it is proud self-will. Proud self-will is when a person or a being is so self-centered that they disregard any authority above them and they push past any boundary that is set before them in the pursuit of their own goals, their own desires, and their own glory. This is when in wickedness someone's own desires and their own ego are supreme in their minds over everyone and everything. Their own desires and their own ego are supreme above truth, above morality, and even above the authority of God himself. Proud self-will seeks to elevate oneself above God and his law and his commandments and everyone else. You know, the heart of evil wants to be the supreme one, wants to be God. That was the original temptation of humanity, was it not? You can be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you don't have to let God tell you what is right and what is wrong. You can decide for yourself. You can step out of the defendant's chair and sit on the judge's seat, and you can tell God what's right, and you can tell God what's wrong, and you can, as Isaiah says, call good evil and evil good. This is the original sin of Satan and all who follow him. So we must guard against the insidious evil of pride and self-centeredness. Proud self-will originated in the heart of the devil and is the original sin which caused the fall of mankind. So we must resist it. Well, how do we resist it? We resist it by cultivating humility instead of pride and a focus on God and others rather than a focus on ourselves. Can I tell you, we are all much too consumed with ourselves. You know, one of the reasons why uh, people are so miserable and then and then the, uh, you know, the counsel of the world makes them even more miserable is they're told to focus on themselves. Follow your heart. Build your self-esteem. The greatest love of all is when you love yourself. It's all inward focus. It's all based on you. Make yourself the center of the universe. That is diabolical wisdom. It's the wisdom from below. The wisdom from on high says, get over yourself and stop thinking about yourself so much. You are not the center, God is. And guess what? When you are focused on yourself, of course you're gonna be miserable because when you look to yourself, what do you see from a eternal standpoint? You see a creature who has fallen. You see a creature who is tainted by evil. You see a creature who is weak and powerless to prevent his own demise, a creature who is mortal and finite. In what there will you find hope? 
What can you find lasting, true, solid, enduring through the trials of life and into past death, into eternity hope? You cannot find it in yourself. So as the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because when your focus is on him, you see one who is holy and righteous and eternal and gracious. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do as the scripture says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. Resist proud self-will, which comes from a self-centeredness, which elevates your own goals, desires, and glory above all else. Proud self-will is diabolical. And so we must turn from it in repentance. Notice, though, that the proud self-will of the wicked king and of his dark master are prophesied to fail. After the wicked king and the dark lord who empowered him said, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Chapter 14, verse 15 says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. This proud and arrogant king will have his body thrown out and trampled upon the ultimate disgrace in the ancient world. The wicked king will fall. And this, of course, foreshadows the final fall of Satan when he is thrust down into the recesses of the pit. Satan's rebellion against God will fail and all who follow him from the ancient king of Babylon to the Antichrist and all others will share the same fate well then in chapter 21 verses 1 through 10 there's another prophecy about Babylon I just want to briefly point out a couple things in chapter 21 verse 2 if you look there in the prophecy about Babylon there is a prophecy that the Elamites and Medes would join forces to defeat Babylon and as I've mentioned that was fulfilled about 160 years later and again this is amazing because here you have a description of the peoples who would form a coalition to overthrow Babylon and that coalition did not exist when Isaiah wrote this and so he's prophesying even the treaties that peoples will form with one another and the combining of arms by the Elamites and the Medes to overthrow Babylon Again, another example of prophetic inspiration. You look even at chapter 21, verse 5, and you see a, a prophecy which was fulfilled at Belshazzar's feast as later recorded in Daniel chapter 5. But really, the culmination of the prophecy against Babylon is in chapter 21, verse 9. It says, Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon! And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. The rebellion of Satan will fail. Babylon will fall and 
all the false gods will lie shattered on the ground. And again, although there is a near fulfillment in the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persians in 539 BC, the citation of this verse in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and again in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, shows that it has a final fulfillment in the defeat of the Antichrist and the fall of what is called in the book of Revelation, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great is the name given to the kingdom ruled by Antichrist in the tribulation period, and it will fall. In the end times, it says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, citing this verse in Isaiah. So Satan's rebellion will fail. That is the point of the prophecy against Babylon. The second nation addressed is Assyria, just briefly in chapter 14, verses 24 through verses 27, because Assyria had already been discussed pretty extensively in earlier chapters. But it's mentioned again in chapter 14, and I think the main lesson here is simply this. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. If you remember in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, God had told Abraham that he was going to, that through his descendants, a blessing would come to all the families of the earth. And then God says, those who bless you, I will bless. But those who curse you, I will curse. This promise of blessing for those who bless Israel and cursing upon those who curse Israel is something that from the moment it was promised by God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, through the current time and on into the future, that promise will be kept. People seek to destroy or to annihilate God's chosen people Israel at their own peril because God has promised to preserve them and so those who bless Israel are blessed and those who curse Israel are cursed. If you think back through history, every nation which has tried to curse the Jewish people has wound up being cursed. And those who have blessed Israel have been blessed. So for any nation on earth, if you want God's blessing, be a blessing to those with whom he made an unconditional and eternal covenant, the people of Israel. Well, Assyria was on the wrong side of that, weren't they? They were a curse to Israel. And so chapter 14, verses 24 through 27 says that they will be broken and they will be trampled. It says they will be broken in my land and they will be trampled. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Third prophecy is to the nation of Philistia, the Philistines, and in chapter 14, verse 28, through chapter 14, verse 32. And I think the main idea here is that God rescues the afflicted, and he does so by judging their oppressors. God has a heart for the afflicted, and he rescues them by judging those who oppress them. The Philistines, of course, were the arch enemies of Israel, and they would often conduct raids into the outlying regions of Israel, and those were the regions where the poor people of Israel lived. And so the Philistines preyed upon the defenseless poor. The defenseless poor who lived in the outskirts of Israel, and God says in this judgment on Philistia that he is going to protect his afflicted 
poor by judging those who oppress them. God rescues the afflicted by judging their oppressors. Look at chapter 14, verses 30 through 32. It says, those who are most helpless will eat and the needy will lie down in security. Well, how? How's that gonna happen? He says, I will destroy your root, that is Philistia, with famine and it will kill off your survivors. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, melt away, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes from the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. This is referring to the coming invasion by Assyria how then will one answer the messengers of the nation and the answer given is that the Lord has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it God is going to judge the oppressors and thereby rescue the afflicted fourth nation addressed is Moab in chapter 15 all the way through chapter 16 verse 14 and I think the main theme here is is a very key truth about the heart of God and that's this God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked in chapter 15 and 16 for two chapters God pronounces judgment upon the wickedness of Moab incredible destruction is coming he his wrath is going to be poured out on Moab but even in the midst of judgment you see the compassion of God for example in chapter 16 verses three through five refuge and salvation is offered to the fleeing people of Moab it says give us advice make a decision cast your shadow like night at high noon hide the outcast do not betray the fugitive let the outcast of Moab stay with you be a hiding place to them from the destroyer for the extortioner has come to an end destruction has ceased oppressors have completely disappeared from the land a throne will even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. This is a call for God's people to offer shelter, to take into their own homes and to take care of the fleeing people of Moab. And then it is the hope given of Messiah who's gonna establish his kingdom. He's gonna rule from the tent of David and he's gonna establish a kingdom of righteousness and the fleeing people of Moab can come to him for refuge. So God offers salvation even to the most wicked peoples of the earth. If they will flee to him for refuge, they will find it. But as chapters 15 and 16 make clear, when the call to repent and be saved is rejected, judgment is going to fall. But even when judgment falls, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is a good and righteous judge. A good judge renders the punishment due. A good judge doesn't turn away from evil. He doesn't withhold the punishment due because he knows that failure to punish the wicked means they will continue to victimize the innocent. And so a good judge renders judgment, but as he does so, he grieves and mourns over the sentence that he has to pass on the wicked. And that is what the Lord is like. Listen to what both the Old Testament and New Testament say about the heart of God. For example, Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. It's the appeal of the Most High Judge. Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, so I'm saying to you, Say to them, 
As I live, declares the Lord God. See, God is saying, this is part of my very nature of my character. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what does God want? He says, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? God is saying there are people who are in their own wickedness, in their proud self-will, just like Satan, are plunging towards the lake of fire. And he's saying, why? Why will you die? Turn back so you can live. He extends his hands of grace. He offers salvation to any who will turn back, who will, instead of rushing off the precipice into hell, will turn from their sin and flee to him for refuge, to the sacrifice for sin that he provided through Christ and the resurrection of Christ, which gives eternal life to all who seek refuge in the Messiah. He says, why will you die? Turn back, turn back. He's saying that to someone here today, turn back. You know you're plunging towards the precipice of hell. Turn back. Why will you die? Why choose your own demise? Why rush headlong into the lake of fire? Flee to the cross. Turn from your sin. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and live New Testament says the same thing about the Lord's heart. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, right? I mean, the scripture has been talking from Old Testament times all the way through the book of Revelation about the terrible day of the Lord when the Lord will judge wickedness, finally put an end to the misery caused by evil. The judge will render judgment and the punishment will fall. Why isn't it happening yet? And the New Testament says because God, it's not that he's slow to fulfill his promise, but he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The judge holds his gavel, but he doesn't swing it because he's waiting he's saying turn back repent I don't want to strike the gavel and render eternal judgment he's pausing and giving you an opportunity to turn from your wicked ways and live well that same idea is seen even in the judgment on Moab in Isaiah 15 and 16 listen to the heartbroken lament of Isaiah who is speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit so this reflects the heart of God listen to the heartbreak as this judgment is pronounced Isaiah 15 5 my heart cries out for Moab and then chapter 16 verses 9 through 11 therefore I will weep bitterly for Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elia. For the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader treads out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. 
Therefore, my heart intones like a harp for Moab and my inward feelings for Kir Haraseth. God is saying, my, my, my heart grieves over what is coming. My heart is like the strings of a harp playing the funeral dirge, weeping and mourning over the destruction that is coming because they will not repent. They are forcing my hand, says the Lord. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He will judge the unrepentant, but he will do so with a grieving heart. Fifth prophecy is Syria, chapter 17, one through four. Ancient Syria is also called Aram. And I think the point of this prophecy is that idolatry will in the end be completely eradicated. The worship of anyone or anything except God will be eliminated. And he's going to eliminate idolatry either by the repentance of the idolaters or by their condemnation. Chapter 17, verse 7 through 10. In that day, man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel, right? This is, this is the desired outcome. This is the repentance. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the ashram and incense stands. In that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel and the land will be a desolation for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. See, there's only two ways to get rid of idolatry. It's either through the repentance of the idolater or the smashing of idolatry. But idolatry will be eliminated one way or another, so you want to be on the repenting of idolatry side, not on the being judged for idolatry side of that solution. Sixth prophecy, and the one we'll end with this morning, is the one given to Ethiopia. This is in chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. And I think the main idea here is that the glory of the nations will be given to God. The glory of the nations will be given to God. In this section, Ethiopia, which in the ancient world was often called Cush, is described as a powerful and a prosperous nation which was famous for its large fleet of ships which both extended Ethiopia's power and, and increased their wealth through worldwide trade. Ethiopia was a powerful nation, a prosperous nation, and twice in chapter 18, the famous height and beauty of the Ethiopian people is mentioned. In chapter 18, verse 2, they're called a nation tall and smooth. That's repeated again in chapter 18, verse 7. Again, a nation tall and smooth, talking about the fame Ethiopia had for their height and their incredible beauty. Ethiopia was a glorious nation. But it was also a nation which oppressed other peoples, Again twice, again in 
verse 2 and again in verse 7, they're described as a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation. So they did not use their power for good and the blessing of others. They used it to oppress others and so there's judgment that will be rendered against them. And in this prophecy, it says that Ethiopia will be humbled and then it will be brought into submission under God. And then it says in the end, Ethiopia will bring its glory to Jerusalem in tribute to God. Look at chapter 18, verse seven. It says, at that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. And where will they bring that tribute? It says it will bring it to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. This, by the way, is one of a number of end times prophecies which all say something similar. It says that in the end times, the glory of the nations will be brought to Jerusalem and given to God in worship. That will occur in the millennial kingdom and it will continue on in the new heavens and the new earth as the nations bring their glory and honor into Jerusalem. I want to close with Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 27. Listen to what this glorious end times scene is like. What, what is it going to be like in the new Jerusalem in the eternal state? If you remember, chapter 21 begins by saying that God's going to wipe away every tear. There's no longer going to be any death, no mourning or crying or pain. He's going to make everything new. And then look at Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, he says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The glory of the nations, the honor and glory of the nations will be brought to New Jerusalem and laid at the feet of Jesus. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to travel around the world. But if you do, I hope you won't be, you know, what sometimes in the kind of traveling world are called the ugly American, right? Someone who, because maybe we have more money than the places you're visiting, you might see ways in which our wealth has given us the ability to build things a different way or do things a different way. Don't be one of those who goes and travels around and is continually thinking, oh, we're so much better than them. Be someone who sees the nations and the peoples the way God sees them as having glory and honor. Glorious cultures, a glorious heritage, honor that is given to them by God who made them in his image. 
these vast, this vast wealth of, of, of glorious cultures and traditions and differences and uniquenesses. And all of those, the scripture says, from all of the tribes and tongues and nations will be brought and laid at the feet of Jesus. They'll bring their glory and honor to him. It's gonna be so glorious. If you've ever had the opportunity to worship with brothers and sisters from other countries, you, it's an unforgettable experience to see their glory and their honor being given to Christ. And there will come a day in which we will get to not only see that, but participate in it. The great worship of the end times when all the glory and all the honor of all of the nations are given to the one who is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and who will rule and reign forever. Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, when all the nations of the world will bring their glory and honor and lay it at your feet, for you are the glorious one, the one worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Lord, you have said that you are saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and we see that prophesied here in the book of Isaiah. Lord, we long for the day when we, along with our brothers and sisters around the world, will worship you. And Lord, in the meantime, help us to be faithful to spread your message to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, beginning with those right next door to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the men are gonna come and serve us communion.